I'm Lights Camera Jackson. This is the LCJ Q&A podcast. The summer of Sony animation continues. Wish Dragon premieres this Friday, June 11th on Netflix. Joining me now, Chris Appelhans, the writer and director of Wish Dragon. Chris, how you doing? Good, thank you. Thanks for having me, Jackson. So excited to get into talking about this movie. And I got to imagine that one of your big wishes is coming true. The fact that this film is finally coming out this Friday. Yes, yeah, so the type of wish that you wonder, uh, will it ever come true? Uh, and it finally it finally made it. We finally got here. So it's a, and it's pretty cool to get to do it on a platform like Netflix, which the, just the, the covers a number of people who can see the movie is crazy. It's so huge. So that's as a storyteller, honestly, at the end of the day, it's kind of your biggest dream is the most number of people can see the movie. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, you've got two powerhouse uh, duo studios here. You've got you've got Sony Animation and you've got Netflix on your first feature film. Did you feel a certain amount of pressure? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because it's been such a strange, it's such a strange origin story. It, it started out the film from such a personal place. I mean, uh, it was a it was something inspired by my traveling to China. 15 years ago by a sort of a personal friendship I made over there that was sort of the genesis of like what an interesting place and time and setting this could be for kind of the Aladdin story. And so it started this long journey that involved finding a partner in China, building a studio out of talent almost entirely from China, and then having a partner like Sony join us and having a partner like Netflix at the very end was, was kind of a the perfect escalation, but it uh, to be honest, I feel the most pressure to my crew and to like all my collaborators on the China side. Like I always felt like if they love the movie, if it felt authentic to them, if it moved them, then I could die happy. <laughs> and then if everybody else in the world loves it, that's great. It moved me. I, I watched it the other day and it moved it moved me, especially in the opening section, because you've got Din and Lena and there's this whole moving away portion. And it just mm. got me because of some personal reasons and some stories that I've heard for years. How emotional did that storyline feel for you incorporating that right at the beginning of the movie? Yeah, it was a big part of, I think one of the things that, that you discover in yeah, when you get to know China is the speed of change. The country has transformed, especially starting in the late eighties, early nineties at a pace that it's just hard to understand for any of us. Um, it, within a matter of four or five years, whole neighborhoods would be replaced by skyscrapers and whole chunks. I mean, if I go back to my childhood home, my neighborhood, it's different, but it's not that different, you know? And so in China, everyone who grew up in that era, 80s, 90s, even into the 2000s, the childhood that they remember, the landscape, the feel of the place, the community, it's completely gone. And so there's a level of nostalgia, not just on a character level of like these two characters who had a really deep friendship, but essentially a whole set of communities and sort of a big shared set of values have also completely changed. There's so much, the nostalgia is so much deeper and I think is so much more, it's like a, we all, to your point, we all have these personal stories in our memories of life when we were children and it, it often means a lot to us and it feels like a thing we can't ever get back. And I feel like that's what's really interesting about that aspect of China is it's just that turned up to 10, you know, turned up to full volume. And so it's just got an extra weight to everything. <laughs> yeah. 
I feel like a lot of us want to look back on our lives when we were young and try to capture that magic again. And it's interesting how you incorporate that storyline into the film. I think Din wants that again with Lena and seeing them 10 years later and those scenes, which I think are the highlights of the movie in terms of emotion and story power. How for you was it crafting those scenes? I think what was a really important revelation when we were writing the film and figuring it out was that Din as a character is sort of, um, we often end up comparing him to like Michael J. Fox's character in Back to the Future, something where mm. he doesn't change a lot. He goes in a big circle. So he starts the movie with a set of values about what's important in life. And he he's very, we often also compared him to like a Stephen Chow protagonist, like Shaolin Soccer or King of Comedy where he's like so optimistic and so like, oh, this is so great. Life's so simple. It's all about this stuff. But that's all, that's all projection. It's all cover for an insecurity he has, which is, am I crazy? Is the world too complicated for those things to matter anymore? Am I a fool for thinking that the people and the relationships in my life are the most important thing? And, and I'm, an, I'm a dummy for not trying to get rich as fast as I possibly can and chase everyone else's you know, set of values. So that's who he is. And I think Lena was his friend at a time when, when he felt like all that was really simple. And so she is both a friend and a person that means a lot to him, but she's also like living proof, maybe that there's somebody else out there in the world who still agrees with me. So it's like a, a sort of a philosophical soulmate, not just a, a childhood friend. So his pursuit of her to try and get her back, despite the fact that they, in the present day, they now live in these totally different class worlds, is a way of him proving to himself that like, actually that stuff doesn't matter, that our friendship and, you know, sort of romance, our relationship is more important than all that. So it's, it's a friendship on a sort of, on a sort of one level, on another level, it's a total, total test of his worldview as a character. And then I think, what he does is he, he goes on this journey and he almost loses himself. He gets to a point where he wonders, he thinks, you know what? I am right. I am right. Screw this. I'm like, <laughs> I've been a fool to have such optimistic th thoughts about the world. And then at the last second, you know, with the help of Long and uh, the other characters in the movie, he, he finds himself again. So it's a coming of age story for him. It's like you have a certain set of values you go out into the world, you, they get challenged, you almost lose them, you almost slip into the abyss and then you pull yourself out at the end. Um, and I think that's, that's a really nice, at least it was really helpful when we started to look at it that way. Yeah, I think it is, you see a lot in the movie about um, finding your soulmate and finding a purpose and that really comes through. And of course we have Long, John Cho voices Long. And I like the fact that John Cho goes really deep with his voice as Long. Was that one of the important things for you in working with him? Yeah, I think the most important thing with John that we focused on was, because for me anyways, as a filmmaker, I really wanted to change up the, I, when you read old stories about genies and cods, one of my favorite things is when I like them when they're like selfish and kind of like out for themselves and tricking you and, and they have their own ambitions. And so we wanted to really push our genie away from the like, hey, I'm your best friend. How can I help you? To somebody who was very selfish, who had his own things that he wanted, right? In the story, long as he has to serve this last of his 10 masters and he's finally freaking free. And so, and he's selfish and his worldview is like totally backwards. Like he's, what would, what would he wish for? More gold and like power and then more gold on top of gold. Like 
he's got a completely different worldview to Din. So when working with John, it was like, we want to be the most charming asshole that you know how to be, like embody that. Because it's also a chance to give the audience a sense of like, look, there's all a part of us that given three wishes, I kind of want to wish for a Lamborghini too. Like that sounds great. It's fun. It, you want to be able to express the kind of wish fulfillment, like the, the silliness of it, the, the part of all of us that wants that stuff. So he's the voice of that. And so it became about, can we craft a performance where he was really fun to be around? He wasn't a grump. He wasn't a downer, but he was incredibly selfish, incredibly flawed. And like, he's being, if you watch the trailer, like he looks like he's being really nice and like, Hey buddy, but it's all just so he can get what he wants. <laughs> it's like a car salesman. He's like a, we always compared him. This is an old time reference, but if you've ever seen the music man, um, there's like a con man and he comes to town and he's so charming and he's selling everybody on this musical. And we, we always compared him to that, to Tony Stark, even to like a Han Solo type character, people who, who are not, when once you understand their motivations, you're like, you might not do the right thing. You might totally do the wrong thing. And that was like, I felt like we'd never seen a genie like that. So, and, and John completely delivered like everything of all those references we downloaded to him. And then it, it was easy because he's so funny. He's yeah. naturally able to like improvise on top of that motivation, you know, and we just tell him like, you're, you're the cleverest, smartest, most selfish car salesman ever, like sell us, fool us. And he totally did. There'd be times where I'm listening to him and he's like, you should wish for, you know, an army, like an army made of terracotta warriors and a freaking palace made of jade. And what else would you possibly want to waste your wishes on? And I'd be like, yeah, I do want a palace. Oh, my God, that sounds better. OK. Convinced you. He, 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 yeah, he totally just, sold me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's very good at this. And speaking of cars and you mentioned Lamborghini and it made me think of Jaguar because Jaguar has a billboard at the beginning of this movie. And yeah. you do a lot with billboards. Have billboards always stuck out for you? I think it's a really, I mean, the, the most fascinating thing visually in China is the juxtaposition of old and new. All of the, the, the 80s and before China sits right on top of modern China. So like when we were doing research, we would see this old, crumbling, dilapidated, kind of amazing communal neighborhood building. And then above it would be a, an electronic billboard straight out of like, you know, I mean, bigger than anything in the States that would have an ad for like some beautiful girl in stepping out of a Jaguar or whatever. So it would be this reality versus aspiration, this like old China versus new China everywhere. And everywhere you turn, you see those two things. And where I lived in Xiamen, which is where we made the movie, I lived there for two years. Mm. And I lived in this big fancy apartment building that was all glass and skyscrapers literally had like LED dolphins that would swim along the side of it every night. And then you'd literally walk across the street and there'd be an old night market that was like straight out of mid-century China. So that contrast, we wanted to at least try to nod to that in the movie and use it as a way to, without talking a lot about that, use it as a way to show the two worlds and the, the world that Din was from and the world that maybe he didn't feel like he belonged in. And when you were there for two years, did you get stuck in traffic as much as what is depicted in the movie? I used to hate traffic when I was young. Yeah, it's, I thought LA traffic was bad. And then I, then I lived in China for two years. I'm like, oh, this is nothing. This is nothing. And our producers, Aaron Warner, who's the, he produced all the Shrek movies and he's amazing. He's just 
the best, but he, he's also, he could be a little grumpy and a little sh short of patience. And we got it stuck in a traffic jam trying to get to, I think we had a really big meeting with Jackie Chan to talk about the voice performance and to get him on board. And we were like already 20 minutes late and stuck in traffic. And our taxi driver realized that we were stressed out and he thought, oh, I know how I'll help unstress you guys. I'm gonna honk like every five seconds to, to make sure that we move traffic along. And I was like, oh God, I'm gonna die in this taxi. Aaron's gonna strangle me and just walk home. So there were so many things where, yeah, living in China, working on the movie there, it just filters into the movie and you get inspiration for moments and scenes and stuff like that. Yeah, it felt very uh, authentic. It absolutely <laughs> did. Chris Applehods is my guest right now in the LCJ Q&A. Wish Dragon is on Netflix this Friday. You mentioned Aaron Warner, the first recipient of the Best Animated Feature Academy Award for the first Shrek movie. With this being yeah. your feature film directorial debut, I mean, what guidance did he give you on how to go into this animation world with a feature, though you have been in the animation world a long time. Yeah, I was probably 15 years into my career um, and I had done, I had developed a few projects right up to the green light stage and then they never made it fully into production. So I had I'm very experienced up to that point, but once you hit production and once you're officially sitting there and as a director, you're responsible to make calls every day and to provide leadership, inspiration for people every day. It's just the game changes. It's a different set of responsibilities. So he was amazing. I mean, he, we, it really annoys him, but we refer to him kind of as our Gandalf because uh, we're like all these earnest little hobbits, like running around trying to do something really cool. And he's, he's constantly sort of foreshadowing, like, this is not going to be as easy as you think it is. And we're like, yeah, whatever Gandalf. And then when we get in deep, trouble he shows up and bails us out but we're also like can't you just stay and be around all the time and just fix all our problems <laughs> but I think his big insight was two things one he's just a very honest filmmaker he won't tell you he likes something if he doesn't like it he's not going to pretend it's funny if it's not funny he also is willing to say hey this is really good relax you're good this is a good sequence let it go keep going move on to the next sequence and I think the other thing he did is he just he believes in filmmakers vision. And so he supported me and he backed me up. And I never once felt like he would challenge me and my opinions and my take or my choices all the time. But he, I never felt like he wasn't, didn't have my back. So it's like a, it's like a linebacker or something. When you're playing football, you like, you need somebody big and strong to give you time to think and to make you feel confident in your decisions. And he was, I mean, he's the best. So don't tell him that though. I don't want him to know. Okay. You know, it's our little secret here on the podcast. It's our, yeah, it's yeah. our little our little secret. But no, that's that's great to hear about him. And you mentioned Jackie Chan as well. And what, what do you think attracted him to this project? Obviously, in the animation world before, as Monkey in the Kung Fu Panda movies. What do you think attracted him to Wish Dragon? You know, it's very gratifying. We met him uh, in in Beijing at uh, one time, and and he was like, "Okay, I'll hear your story here. I'll hear your pitch." I had a great time doing the DreamWorks stuff, but I'm not. I don't want to do a ton of animation, you know. But we'll hear it. So we we pitched the movie to him. And the first thing he said was, oh, oh, this is a good movie. You guys are trying to make a good movie. OK, that's very hard. Do you know how hard that is? And we're like, I think so. He's like, OK, good, because I'd like to help you do this. But, you know, it's really hard to make a good one. And I was like, that was such a refreshing thing, because I think Jackie got into the movie business purely out of the love of it. Like when he was started out, nobody was paying him money. He was making the stuff. I mean, they were making films and being chased by the police because it was illegal to shoot films, you know, in whatever neighborhood in Hong Kong they were doing their action scenes. 
So he comes from a genuine love of film. And then you make enough movies, you learn very quickly how hard they are to be, to make a good one. Mm. And so I think he saw the, in the writing and the pitch and the artwork, he saw the quality of the film we wanted to make. And, and he wanted to, un, he wanted to be sure that we were serious about that. We really want to make something good. And, and both of those things really inspired us because it, it felt like it wasn't about somebody who was going to like, okay, what do you want me to do? I'll show up. You pay me a lot of money. I'll, I'll do what you tell me. It was like, do you want to make a good movie together? If you do, then I'm in. Um, and that was, that was a pretty special kind of invitation. It felt like, um, and then he was great. I mean, his Mandarin performance is really, really, really funny, really charming, different than John in some ways, but also pretty much perfectly authentic in, in other ways. Nice. Yeah, that's so interesting to hear about. Jackie Chan has been around for so long and you're right, loves the movie business to know a good one from a clunker. I mean, he, he, can, he can take that. And, and that's great that he saw something in this movie early on. And I want to shift just briefly here. One of my personal wishes for this interview today, Chris, is for you mm -hmm. to tell me about your work as an environment designer on one of my favorite animated movies of all time, Fantastic Mr. Fox. Oh. I love that movie. What stands out to you when you think about your work on that film? You know, I think I took the big lesson I took from it was the clarity of vision um, that Wes has. It's, it's incredibly specific. And when I worked with him, you know, he would give me a little napkin sketch based on a, a he, he would send me the script and have a little napkin sketch of a shot or a concept. And he would say something like this. And, and he was always really excited about whatever design work I did. But also he was always had incredibly specific feedback and down to the, you know, whatever the shape of the lapel on the Fox's suit was, or the, you know, he would send me a reference for old, like Rex Harrison, an old actor that he wanted the feel of the Fox design to capture. And I think that was a real lesson to me in the sense of um, when you're making a film, it's important to be specific. It's important to have a strong opinion about every detail. And that can seem really arbitrary and you can seem like a, like a crazy director who's like nitpicking everything, but to make a really good film, it requires that attention to detail. And right. uh, you have to, you have to have that level of intensity, I think, in order to really follow through It's just such a long, it's like a, a puppet show that takes six years to make and perform and record and edit. And so if you don't, if you don't have that intensity to make everything sort of serve the whole, then you're not going to make a very good film. So that was, I remember thinking a lot of, cause I would torture my crew and give them so many notes and be so specific. And they would sometimes be like, Oh my God, really do we have to do it? And it was, I just remember thinking, well, I think it really, it's part of the equation. It's part of what a director needs to do um, yeah. for everything to add up at the end. Yeah. I think that absolutely matters. And there are so many, visual details in that movie that are just unbelievable. And so I, yeah. I congratulate you for all the work that you did on that. And obviously for all the work that you put into Wish Dragon as we wrap things up here on this episode, is it true that a sequel to Wish Dragon is already in development? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's coming along. It's got a great sort of second step. It's always hard with a character like Long. If once you see the movie, you know, he's, he does have sort of a Tony Stark character development he, mm. he does kind of redeem himself so it's always hard to like build a second chapter when you take somebody like that and, and really sort of 
it's like the defining moment of their existence. You do it in the first movie, like, where do you go next? But we've got a really cool concept and early days, but really exciting. Yeah. That's that's wonderful. Another wish coming true. It's not only one movie, but you get to build out a franchise. That's that's great. Yeah, pretty fun. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Chris Appelhans, thank you for your time today. Thank you for being on the LCJ Q&A. I can't wait for families to check out Wish Dragon this Friday, June 11th on Netflix. Yeah, thank you, Jackson. My pleasure. I'm Lights Camera Jackson. Thanks for listening to this episode of the LCJ Q&A podcast. For more, go to Twitter at LCJ Reviews and lcj.podbean.com. I'll see you next time.